Lord, we stand amazed at your goodness. Lord, it's your, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your, your goodness that just dictates everything. Sometimes that's difficult to see in our lives. But it's always there. It's always present. It's always available to us. Not simply the knowledge of it, but your presence in our lives. We thank you. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would grant us insights that would help us to live in ways that are worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please uh, be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, while Barb was in Canton, that's when I venture on to Amazon and watch things that she wouldn't ordinarily watch. And so I stumbled across the series Alone. I don't know if anybody, am I the only one? A few people. Alone, right? So Alone is the History Channel's hit survival series that delivers at dangers and, and challenges and really uh, deprivation for 10 uh, participants who are equipped with 10 items and they just go into a remote wilderness where they are truly alone and they have to make their way. If they want food, they have to get it. If they want shelter, they have to make it. If they other than the clothing on their back and the items that they're able to bring in. That's, that's all they have. And the uh, History Channel provides them with four cameras, two that they wear uh, on them and two that are, are mounted, and they're in total isolation. Now, there is a rainbow, uh, and at the end of that rainbow, the pot with $500,000, which is uh, no small amount, and they endure... Uh, all kinds of things, not the least of which is hunger. It seems that most contestants end up losing about 20% of their body weight. And each season, there are contestants who will lose 60 to 80 pounds. Now, this has spawned even a, a diet, the alone uh, diet, which I, I can't uh, know enough about it to know whether I recommend it or not. But uh, they, they face uh, loneliness, they face the elements, and at times they are hunted by predators. And they have to protect themselves because there are no camera crews. There's no one off to the side uh, with a rifle in case something goes wrong. There are no gimmicks. It is the ultimate test of human will short of simply abandoning them there. Well, I was immediately hooked, of course. This is great. And, and one of the things that became obvious to me was that beyond shelter, beyond water, and beyond fire, the most mind-occupying, physically demanding, energy-consuming thing was to find food. I was spellbound as I saw these men and women, uh, how they were able to create these meals of, of mushrooms or roots or 
or berries, and having found that, be content, as some of us heard already this morning. But they knew, all of them, that that kind of a diet wouldn't carry them through. These things, I think, probably average about 70 days on your own, which is quite a stretch. They need protein. And one of the survivalists in the series that I watched was able to get a deer. Now, here's the thing. I think he got the deer around day uh, 40. He was well and goodly starved at that point. And the thing that I noticed the most was when he went up to the deer, he fell down to his knees. He began to weep and he said, thank you, thank you. I don't know who he was talking to, but he was overjoyed. To say that he was contented at that moment is an understatement. He was filled with gratitude, not because he knew he was going to win, but because that night he was going to eat. And that was reminiscent of something we heard also this morning. As the deer panteth for the water, so my heart panteth after you. But today we are so removed from the land that it's almost impossible for us to even experience that kind of contentment or that kind of joy based on that. I mean, we become agitated if the service at a restaurant is too slow. Oh, my eggs weren't cooked just right or whatever it is. We become discontented when things are too hard, when we take ourselves too seriously. And we don't even rejoice when we meet the goals that we've set, because if we conclude in our minds that if we've set those goals and we met them, then we set the bar too low. And so we simply go to the next thing. Baron Congleton, who was an aristocrat uh, back in the mid-1800s in the, the peerage of the United Kingdom, for those who might be interested, and one of the early brethren was once asked by a woman if he could give her five pounds. Uh, that's the English uh, uh, money. And, and so he did. And as she was leaving, he heard her, what was intended to be under her breath, but loud enough for her, him to hear, saying, why didn't I ask for ten <laughs> but it's a delicate question, this, about being content with what we have. And I do not want to ever offer platitudes that don't work. I mean, often when the speaker says, you can be content and not can be, more often it's stated you should be content in every situation. The implication being, if you're not content right now, then somehow you're not spiritual. There's something less there. And so when people, when you hear this about contentment, uh, I think many, if not most people, including myself, 
from time to time, inwardly groan and think, oh, great, another way that I don't feel like I measure up. When life is challenging, contentment can be fleeting. Not only that, but we live in a sea of discontent by design. Our entire economy, if you didn't know this, is predicated on the notion that we should be discontent. Harvard Business Review concluded regarding a recent study which 900,000 people took part in is this. This is the conclusion. Advertising makes you unhappy. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised by those results. They certainly don't surprise by me because at the heart of every advertising message you have ever heard or ever will hear is you are not as happy or content or satisfied as you could be without that product. Oh my, if you don't use this shampoo or that soap or drive this car, you're missing it. This then, of course, leads... Well, no, let's go on with the advertising notion there. If you buy this product, and this is what completely baffles me, it could be a toaster, it doesn't matter, but if you buy this, it will lead you to deeper, more profound, even more romantic relationships. You will be happier, your life will be easier, and everything will be more convenient and luxurious. Even your coffee will taste better. I could give you some jingles which you could all answer back, but I just won't. I don't want to put that in your heads. Every advertisement stirs up discontent, and it convinces us that we are not as happy and contented as we could be. Now, as an aside, and this is, there's no humor here at all, this is precisely why social media causes depression and breeds discontent, is because you're looking all the time at the heights of someone's life, and even those heights are most often manufactured. They're not even real. And yet, oh, oh, I'm something less because I, I see this perfection. We can't measure up. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, where we're going to talk about uh, godliness with contentment and what that means. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. 
Now, that's a dose of reality right there. Paul states the obvious. It should be obvious to each one of us. You can't take it with you. What Paul is doing is he's warning Timothy about these false teachers who are using godliness as a means of physical and financial gain. Because they not, I'm not sure whether it's they fail to understand uh, that godliness itself is the gain, or if they understand that, but they simply don't care because money overpowers them. But the failure, regardless of why, brings them to the same place, and that is a place of discontentment. Why? Money never has and never will bring contentment. That is purely in the realm of Christ where we find contentment. But let's, let's define some words first. Number one, godliness. Godliness is a very old, ancient Greek word, and it has the notion with it as an attitude and a way of life of a devotion, to be devoted In the Bible, of course, that devotion is directed uh, exclusively towards uh, the creator uh, God and acknowledges God's claim on us, and we seek to live that out. Godliness is not simply morality. There are people who are not godly who are very moral people. It is not simply morality. It's morality that is coupled with a zealous devotion to God. Second, one of the marks of genuine godliness is contentment. Now, this word is well known. It was well known to the philosophers. In fact, the philosophers sought after this thing called contentment. But how we define contentment and how the Greek philosophers define contentment, you might find there is a little difference. Among the Greeks, the word literally means self-sufficient. So the Greeks taught that a wise person who was contented needed no one else or nothing else in order for that person to be complete. That's what that meant. They didn't mean, uh, they didn't need anything else. There was no demand upon them to change their circumstances. And what Paul did all through his writings was he took this word that was very well known and he flipped it right on its head. And we find that he turned this word into meaning not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, he gives the perfect picture of Christian, the Christian notion of contentment, where he says, I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased. I... Has anyone ever been abased? Yes. <laughs> Happens in the courtroom. Right? I know how to abound. 
Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So this contentment is coming from an attitude of mind and heart, which is Christocentric. Christ is in the center, in the middle. Paul doesn't believe for one second, for one moment, that our sufficiency resides internally inside of us. Our sufficiency is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to repeat verse 13, I can do all things. Now, if you stopped there, that would be a grotesque statement. But when you finish it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There now you have an understanding of godliness as contentment. And that's great gain. Christian radio host Steve Brown says it this way. A little is as much as a lot provided that it is enough. In Colossians, Paul makes an amazing statement about what enough is. It's an an amazing statement. He says that as a believer in Christ, you are partially whole. (laughs) You are complete in Christ. That's the secret of contentment. One of my, just for some practical things that you might be able to take with you, one of my Study Bibles offers four things to keep in mind regarding contentment that that I have found helpful. First, focus on what God has allowed you to have. Focus on what what he has allowed you uh, to have. Second, disregard what you don't have. Focus on what you do. Disregard what you don't. Refuse to covet what others have. And finally, give thanks for all the things that God gives to you. When we focus on what God has given to us through Jesus Christ, like the alone contestant, what our response should be is to fall to our knees and weep and be thankful to God that we have this. I I would invite you, you know, the human mind works much faster than a person speaks, so you can think and listen at the same time. So while I'm talking, I would invite you to do an inventory in your mind of the goodness of God in your life, the things that God has given to you, has blessed you with. And what you'll find is that our Lord is gracious, that he has given you many things. But if our focus becomes on what God has not given us, we become discontented. I mean, all you have to do is peek at the the Israelites as they're moving from Egypt to the promised land The children of Israel did not find in manna what they wanted. They wanted something more. It wasn't because 
what they needed wasn't present. It's because what they desired wasn't present. And that is, it wasn't the life-giving food that was given from the hand of God. It's they wanted meat. Okay. You know what the Lord did? He gave it to them. The Lord is, even in our discontent, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He gives us filled, pressed down, running over. That's the God that we serve. God's given us much, but we want more. And we're the more that we wanted forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. I think that's a good thing. However, it comes closer to I want more because I look at what my neighbor has. She has more. He has more. I want that. I want more. And when our hearts become set on more, it becomes a sickness. And it's a sickness that, at least as Paul indicates, can lead to the abandonment of the faith. When our hearts, not salvation, that's not what I said, don't hear that, but the abandonment of all things just drift away into aloneness and not in a good sense. When our hearts are set on more, we fill it with dreadful things. We forget to thank God. And then when we do get something from God, sometimes we say, well, it's about time. Now, staying close to the immediate context here, Paul is talking about false teachers. In verse 5, which we didn't get to cover in any, uh, well, we didn't cover it all, understand that they were preoccupied with useless wranglings. In other words, they liked to fight, they liked to argue, they, they, their minds were corrupt, they didn't have the truth, and they thought of godliness as a means of financial gain. And so Paul makes a a profound statement here. It's simple, it's self-evident, but it's still profound. He wrote, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now, Paul was, in essence, he was quoting Job. When Job said this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will go. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I mean, we all know very early in life that in the end, money and houses and land and clothing and cars and treasures and jewels, it's all going to be left behind. In fact, this was so evident to Solomon. Solomon was pulling his hair out over this. And he mourned. Do you know why he mourned? Well, there were a number of things. But among them, he was mourning that he had to leave all his treasures to some of his useless kids. I'm sure he had children that he was, you know, thought were were great. Kings back in that day, they had a bunch of kids. You know, when John uh, D. Rockefeller died, someone wanted to know just how wealthy he was. And so asked the aide, how much did he leave behind? And the aide, uh, you know, a wise uh, person said, all of it. 
Sadly, while Rockefeller was alive, he was also asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And Rockefeller's answer was just one more dollar. When you make that's the pursuit, you will not find it. Nakedness, nakedness and empty hands are the bookends of this life. Every so often we hear stories, you may hear stories or read stories of who, people who ask to be buried, you know, in some kind of special way. In 1977, you can check this out. It's just about three and a half hours down the road in San Antonio. Uh, Sandra Eileen West. She was flamboyant. She was beautiful. She was Beverly Hills. She was an oil heiress and loaded with money. Sadly, she died at the very young age of 38. But she and her, her husband had already uh, died. <laughs> and in her will, she wrote that she was to be buried in her baby blue 1964 Ferrari. California license plate uh, RBM 362, just in case you were interested. Next to her husband at the Alamo Masonic Cemetery in San Antonio, who was also, by the way, buried in his car. The will stated, there's some really funny jokes that I could do now, but I can't take the time. But the will stated that if her brother-in-law, name of Saul West, did not bury her in the Ferrari because he decided she's dead, I'm going to keep it myself, he would be disinherited. <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan, some of you are older, you may recognize his name, sang a song about Willie the Wimp. And uh, Willie was a Seville driving, diamond-studded professional gambler who was gunned down in Chicago, and he was buried in his Cadillac coffin. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> Let me quote just one little bit of that song, just because it's, I wouldn't have thought that Stevie Ray Vaughan would have said this, but he said, buried in his Seville coffin, I don't think he'll get very far. So we have two things when we come into this world, too. We have our bodies, and we have our souls. And when we uh, leave, our bodies are, will await the resurrection. Our souls will go to God. I do a lot of genealogy, have for years and years. And I've seen thousands of tombstones uh, taken imprints and all kinds of things with them. But nearly all of them, not all, but nearly all of them have a birth date and a date of death. And then in between, there's a little dash. And that dash represents your life. A dash. In 2013, Barbara and I were in Italy, and we had just gone through this cathedral, and down underneath the cathedral was a, uh, for lack of a better word, a tunnel that had 
uh, rooms off to the side filled with bones, 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 tens of thousands of bones. And then when you come to the last room, there's a tombstone there, and in Italian it reads, Remember me as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And then there's these bones that go up against the wall into this massive, beautiful piece of art depicting the resurrection. Prepare yourself to follow me. Jesus Christ is the only pathway to eternal life. Verse 8, Paul wrote that with food and clothing, we ought to be content. The word clothing there doesn't actually mean clothing. It's, it's a much broader word than that. It means uh, what you wear, but also how you're sheltered. So there's the notion of uh, food and shelter and, and clothing all, all built in there. Beyond that, and this is where I struggle I can only imagine we all struggle. Beyond that, everything else is bonus. And in that context, we have to understand that God has spoken about this elsewhere. Listen to the words in Matthew 6. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God, okay, now we're coming to his point. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you O you of little faith, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things shall be added to you. Discontent comes from looking for satisfaction or happiness or contentment in our circumstances rather than in Christ. And when we do that, we'll never find it. Many times, and once again I will, I've quoted Viktor Frankl, so I'll just paraphrase him him this time. Contentment does not come from the pursuit of contentment. It doesn't. 
A little, here's a little, a little parenthetical in between. The reason for that is because things do not provide contentment. They can and certainly do provide uh, pleasure and maybe ease and other things, but not contentment because they will lose their appeal. It soon it will not be enough. Okay, close parentheses. Contentment comes from pursuing Christ. So now we come to the most misquoted, just in case you wanted to know, at least based on everything I've read, the most misquoted verse in the Bible. Uh, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil uh, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The misquote is this, money is the root of all evil. That is not what scripture says. Rather, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. That's why Paul says that those who desire to be rich, this word desire, this, they have set their heart on the pursuit of wealth. Those people whose heart, when they wake up, is how can I make one more dollar? How can I become rich They are the ones who will fall in a temptation and a snare, and they will not be content. And I want to, having said that, notice that he doesn't say being, there's nothing wrong with being rich. I would love, maybe love is too strong a word. (laughs) I I wouldn't turn it away, let's say that. However, the strong and abiding urge to be rich results in a person who has a willingness to trample down the moral fences that he or she might not otherwise do. Some argue that money itself is contaminated. I mean, it's inherently uh, corrupt. It's something that's so broken that it's irreparable. It's bad. I mean, you know, you can can go. I mean, uh, Christ calls money unrighteous. Paul calls it... Filthy lucre, uh, whatever lucre is, that's what it is. But when we think about money, uh, you know, you could pull out your wallet and, and you pull out a credit card or you, maybe you've got some dollars. Understand, that's not, that, that is not money. Money is a grand total of nothing except for the fact that we say it's something. And as long as we all agree that it's something, then it works. But money is money's a, is a construct. It's a notion. It's just an idea. And yet, how it's used can be very, very wrong. I don't happen to believe that money is, in and of itself, that concept, evil and bad. I've got a more generous view. However, I uh, do not think that the love of money is... Good, And so that means now we're getting down to it because this love is a powerful uh, word. Love is something that has power regardless, whether it's uh, godly or an ungodly love. It is something that, that drives, you know, you imagine a person with a preoccupation about anything, whether it's, whether it's eating or whether it's drinking or gambling or whatever it might be, it can cause... 
pain, a great deal of pain. Holding on what you want can kill or harm you. When I was in Alaska, wonderful experiences up there. One of them was uh, to be able to go up to up on the North Slope, up near the the, the Arctic uh, area, and uh, stand on an escarpment and and just just look at this fabulous nature. And one of the things that I witnessed was an eagle. And you, what you would not think it, but the, up there, at least where I was at, there's these uh, Arctic ground squirrels. They're like prairie dogs. And they're thousands of these things. They're all over the place. And so the eagle would come across, and it looked like, you know, at a football game when, when people do the wave, you know, they stand up and sit down. So you'd have the squirrels that's, that would be doing that. You know, the eagle would fly over, the squirrels would go down. When he was passed, they'd pop back up, do whatever it is they were doing. And he, he did that an, a number of uh, times. Uh, you know, sometimes you can make a mistake what your target is, and he needs to eat, critters need to live, and so there's this constant battle uh, that's going on. I don't know. If you've lived in certain places, you may know what a weasel is. Usually, if we use the word weasel, it's different. I mean, we're talking about someone who's like sneaky and all of that. But an actual weasel, little weasel, okay, they're only like five or six inches long. I mean, they're little bitty critters, right? And they only weigh a few ounces. But ounce for ounce, they are probably the most ferocious hunter in the world a little bitty weasel a tiny little weasel will attack animals that are six eight times their size they'll take down in some cases some larger weasels will take down like a baby deer i mean these things are just absolutely vicious and so you might find it difficult to believe what I'm about to say, so you may want to look it up if you go, that's not, uh, that's not true. They will even leap on the backs of birds and kill them in flight <laughs> to get their meal. Now, having said that about the weasel, the birds, usually birds of prey, uh, were thinking that the weasel might be a little ground squirrel or something. And to, you know, just to be fair, they were going after it first, usually. And then the weasel, you know, uh, fights back. T.D. T. D. Jakes, some of you may have heard of him. He tells a story. Now this, I, uh, I have seen, you can find videos of weasels jumping on the backs of birds, birds of prey and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, this is a story that he tells about an eagle. I would think that that would be a, a real d- difficult situation. But nevertheless, he tells the story about a, an eagle who misadventures, picks up a weasel. He's flying off, and uh, this, this weasel goes after the eagle's chest and just starts chewing, chewing, chewing until he gets to the heart. And the eagle goes down. And so does the weasel, but they, they, they both go down. And why do I say that? 
when Christ is not our contentment, when we bring something else into our life that we feel will make us content other than Christ, we're like the eagle. All the eagle had to do was let go of the stupid thing. We're like the eagle when we bring something that can do us deadly harm close to us in our heart and in our life. And we need to get rid of that. And there's only one way to get rid of it. It's not like some religions where you say you have to, you have to get rid of the desire. Forget that. Do you know how, do you have any concept how big the hole is in our hearts if God is not there? We will fill it with anything. We will fill it with toxic relationships. We will fill it with drugs. We will fill it with pornography. We will fill it with money. There's only one way to get rid of that desire, and it's not to try to stop it won't work. It doesn't work. Never has, never will. It has to be replaced with true riches. And those riches are godliness with contentment. Jesus said, Our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Wealth cannot buy contentment. Money can buy medicine, but not health. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy companionship, but not friends. Money can buy entertainment, but not happiness. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a crucifix, but not a savior. Can buy a good life but not an eternal life. I love what Seneca, the Roman statesman, said. Money has never yet made anyone rich. However, let me add in conclusion that you, if you know Jesus Christ, you have all the riches you will ever need, want, or desire. Father, we are amazed at how the description that you give in your care for us includes weeds, grass in the fields. Some of these flowers last only for a few days. Some of these uh, birds are not on the wing very long, but you take care of them. And we are of so much more value. We thank you. We praise you. In that knowledge, allow our contentment not come from an act of the will or some sort of discipline. It doesn't come from there. It comes from filling that huge void that we have with you. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Through Christ our Lord, amen.